Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is a, a special podcast, a different kind of one. Uh, at least for me, this is a joint podcast between Multi Faith Matters and Sacred Tension with Stephen Bradford Long. And uh, without any further ado, let me introduce the two gentlemen who will be doing most of the conversation, and I'll be serving kind of as host and may interject some things as we go along here. First of all, I have Stephen Bradford Long, who is a non theistic minister with the Satanic Temple and host of the Sacred Tension podcast. He has also recently started writing for Substack, and uh, I have appreciated that writing. And uh, Stephen has been a guest on uh, the Multi-Faith Matters podcast several times before. I've been on his podcast. We co-authored an article for a Christian journal, Cultural Encounters Together. So, Stephen, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And the conversation partner, Randall Rouser. Randall is a progressive Christian who has written several books on a neighborly engagement with atheism, including Conversations with My Inner Atheist. I love that title. An atheist and a Christian walk into a bar and is the atheist my neighbor? And Randall's been on, I think, a couple of times as well, at least once, if not a couple of times. So, Randall, welcome back as well. Good to be here, John. Thanks. Well, it's good to bring you two gentlemen together. I think this will be a great conversation. Um, just to kind of set the set the table for folks uh, who are watching or listening, depending upon where they're they're grabbing a hold of this, um, we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes. I noticed uh, as I follow the Satanic Temple that I think within the last couple of weeks, I think it was in July. Correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen. They had uh, it that, was unveiling day. That should be correct. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a, a, a holiday or a celebration mm-hmm. that was described by the Satanic Temple uh, as uh, dedicated to a celebration of religious pluralism and overcoming archaic superstition. And I thought that would make an interesting uh, jumping off point for conversation, especially on the archaic superstition aspect and how that's defined and how that relates to uh, in religion in general that TST may have concerns about, but in particular where Randall and I are coming from in regards to Christianity, uh, where Stephen has a prior Christian background before becoming uh, an atheist and a Satanist. Before we get into that, would you two gentlemen uh, briefly summarize your respective spiritual journeys? Stephen, let's start with you. Goodness. I was not prepared for that question. Um, In short, I am a non-theistic minister of Satan in the Satanic Temple. So the Satanic Temple is my religious community, um, and it's the community that I serve uh, on a regular basis, mostly in an administrative role. I work on Ordination Council, which uh, oversees the operations of the ordination program and Satanic Ministry, which is the global body of ministers within the Satanic Temple. So uh, beyond that, I follow the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple. I take the seven tenets very seriously. I 
also am something of a secular Buddhist, so I I call myself a spooky Buddhist. Um, uh, that I meditate. I, I hesitate to even call myself a Buddhist. I'm I'm uh, I'm a meditator. Let me go with that. I'm <laughs> I I meditate daily, and that is very much part of my satanic practice. And um, I have a deep interest in religion, in organized religion, in the value of religious life, and um, and how to approach that as a non-theist, as an atheist, and these two seemingly irreconcilable things, atheism uh, slash non-theism and religious life and spiritual life. So those are my interests, and that's kind of where my religious practice is. Hey, I'm sure some of this will be coming out over the course of the conversation, particularly in relation to a recent article you wrote for Substack. But you, you were you raised Christian, or you just came from a Christian background before becoming an atheist? I was very much raised Christian. Yes. Okay, yeah. that's helpful. I can, I can tell you more about that background too. It's kind of a while. I don't think we've ever talked about my my background, John. Yeah, um, I don't, I'll tell you more about it at some okay. point. Okay, <laughs> maybe we can here. Yeah. Randall, what about you? I know you're a progressive Christian, but I don't think I've ever read much about your spiritual journey. Uh, so I, I wrote a book a few years ago called What's So Confusing About Grace, which would synopsize my journey in probably about 300 pages. I was raised Pentecostal, I broadly say fundagelical, so not a term I coined, but it's you know aspects of fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Gradually on a journey for 30 years since... I went to university, eventually got a PhD in systematic theology, uh, became a Baptist in the mid-90s. And I would say today, yeah, I could broadly call me a progressive Christian. Uh, some days I call myself a progressive evangelical, although the term evangelical has become so polluted with baggage today that uh, I'm becoming increasingly circumspect about ever using it. Uh, but I do think of myself as a historic evangelical in the, the sense of someone like John Wesley in the 18th century or William Booth, maybe in the 19th century to call me paleo-orthodox as well, which was a term Thomas Oden used. My most recent book, The Doubter's Creed, I think that there'd be a lot in there that Stephen would, would probably be in agreement with. That's uh, really focuses on what are the, the basics that, uh, what's really at the heartbeat of Christianity. And I would say, well, it's love of God and love of neighbor, but even love of God is something that a person who is ostensibly an atheist can begin to explore by understanding an absolute transcendent good out there by which they can form their lives. And then, of course, the love of neighbor as well. So I, I do think there's a lot that uh, would unite us, even though we use some different labels and obviously have some very different beliefs. Well, thanks for that. And again, thanks for you two being willing to have this conversation. What I appreciate about the work of both of you is that you're good and careful thinkers. And as you engage others through difference, you you really try to understand where the other one is coming from. And you do so in a very neighborly kind of fashion. So my hope is that this conversation could be something that whether you're an atheist, Satanist, Christian of whatever perspective, that then come away with at least hopefully learning more, but at least seeing something modeled by way of a more positive conversation. So with all of that, um, let's return to that idea of uh, the unveiling day of the Satanic Temple. I think we would all agree, correct me if I'm wrong, that we can celebrate religious pluralism. I know evangelicals are not <laughs> well known in America for celebrating that, but it's a reality. 
And I think we we need to recognize that reality and learn how to navigate it more carefully, particularly in light of Christian nationalism and this kind of a thing. So would you agree with that, Randall? I would say yes and no. There are aspects of pluralism or plurality that I would want to uh, certainly affirm, including the fact that we can learn a lot from people that we disagree with. And there are certain there are certain areas where where there are things on which um, it's not logically exclusive. You could have two complementary perspectives. But there's also a sense of pluralism where it's not necessarily something I think that we would applaud. So, for example, if if um, let's say, for example, we, we just passed through the COVID-19 pandemic. And if there was a pluralism with respect to how best to treat the vaccine, or to best to avoid uh, or which vaccines to treat. You, you know what I'm saying? I'm kind of mumbling. I'm going to start that over. If there was a pluralism about how the disease is transmitted, about which vaccine is best to prevent the disease, and so on, we wouldn't in and of itself applaud that. We would want to know, well, but what is the best way to uh, to deal with the pandemic? And what is the best vaccine to use? And similarly, I think there are certain questions under which a dis, uh, the existence of plurality of disagreement is not in and of itself necessarily a good thing. So what we have to do is we have to have conversations precisely like what we're having now. I think there is a lot that I can learn from Stephen, perhaps something he can learn from me. Because we are, each one of us is probably going to be wrong about some things and right about other things. And so and so I would pl- want to affirm some degree of pluralism or plurality in and of itself is intrinsically good. And also say to some degree, we want to work on seeking greater unanimity where disagreement exists. Do you have any response to that, Stephen? Yeah, I think that, so what I've come back to quite a bit as I've thought about this is a book by Jonathan Rausch, who's a writer and journalist I really admire. And he wrote a book called The Constitution of Knowledge. And the basic idea there is that we can practice pluralism as long as we're playing by the same rules. And I'm a believer firm believer in pluralism, A, because I think it is the best way to live in a society. Um, but also I think that we don't have a choice. Um, this We live in a pluralistic world. That horse is out of the barn. We can't go back. Uh, so we have to figure out how to live in a pluralistic society. We don't have a choice. Um, and Jonathan Rausch's insight is that there is a set of underlying principles that determine that that help ensure that we play by the same rules that we accept that there are that that we all follow the the same game of voting the same kind of basic democratic institutions the the scientific method etc um and there are beliefs that we can hold that that exist outside of those but as long as we respect the institutions that maintain society and as long as we kind of at least agree on a few basic principles that we don't lie that there is a fact of the matter i mean those are very basic um but we can build up from there to to you know more complicated foundations um we don't need to all be on the same page ideologically as long as we are in my opinion as long as we are playing by the same rules and i i think that what worries me is there are there are movements 
um, here in the United States that are trying to overturn the those rules. And that is a kind of, you know, it's, it's a good metaphor is the rules of the road. You know, we can all uh, kind of uh, follow, you know, we can all respect stoplights and or, or stop signs and, and red and green lights and drive on the correct side of the road and so on. Um, pluralism is possible as long as we follow these these basic tenets of civil society. And when we don't, then that's a kind of pluralism that I think maybe you were alluding to <laughs> that is dysfunctional. That's all I had to say in response to that. Yeah. So, so I hear, obviously, it makes sense. You have your responses are coming from different places. Stephen, yours is a concern for Christian hegemony in America, which is not yeah. particularly friendly to religious minorities and many times trying to to uh, be at odds with religious pluralism. And yet to be a true American, you have to be Christian, this kind of a thing. And where I hear Randall coming from is helping re remind us of the importance of definitions, that there's religious pluralism on the one hand, a multiplicity of religious options in America and in the world. But there's also religious pluralism in the senses where I would uh, I think you would agree too, Stephen, that not every religious option especially with contradictory ideas, can be true at the same time. So we need to continue to have those conversations respectfully, but we're trying to persuade each other as to which is, is the best in the true way. Have I summarized you guys' concerns adequately? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I um, I do think that we always have to define terms. So a term like pluralism can mean all sorts of things. So typically when I hear pluralism, uh, this is a particular approach to truth claims where multiple truth claims that seem to be incompatible with one another are, in fact, all equally, quote unquote, true. So it cashes out to a kind of relativism, uh, which I would have problems with, although there are contexts, domains of discourse in which relativism applies. I mean, a trivial example is disagreements about flavor. Um, but uh, but there are other areas where where we wouldn't want to just applaud the diversity of perspective in and of itself. Simply recognizing the existence of plurality and cautioning about any one voice becoming a hegemonic oppressor of other voices is certainly a concern that we would share. Yeah. So go ahead, Stephen. Did you have something you want to say? Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah. So there's that, that one aspect of Unveiling Day, uh, a celebration of religious pluralism. But where I think there might be more disagreement, again, depending upon how things are defined and, and how it's applied, is this idea of archaic superstition. Stephen, can you help us understand what the Satanic Temple means when it uses that terminology? I can try. Um, <laughs> I would have to, I, I'm actually not sure who wrote that particular copy <laughs> for, um, I don't know if it was Malcolm or Lucian or someone else uh, in leadership at the time. So let me let me actually zoom out some and read the information from the TST website about the holidays and especially unveiling day. So as you re as you referenced, it is a celebration of religious plurality and shedding archaic superstition. Uh, but more than that, a, uh, a centerpiece of our religious movement and icon of modern Satanism, the Baphomet with children statue was commissioned by the Satanic Temple in 2014 and created by Mark Porter with, quote, respect for diversity and religious minorities in mind, end quote. 
On July 25th, 2015, the Satanic Temple unveiled Baphomet to a large crowd of devotees in Detroit, signaling the beginning of the new Satanic era. We observe this milestone in Satanic history by celebrating Unveiling Day. So Unveiling Day marks the unveiling of the Baphomet statue, and uh, which is the iconic TST image. It's everywhere. Whenever you see a new story about the Satanic Temple, it is almost always the uh, the the uh, Baphomet with children statue. And so that's that symbol is really, really important to a lot of Satanists in TST. And so that is what Unveiling Day is referring to. That is the unveiling. And uh, a lot of Satanists have taken it from there to also be kind of a coming out day to be a uh, a day to come out as as trans or as gay or whatever the case may be um they celebrate it as an unveiling of a part of who they are that was previously hidden i mean so satanism is a very kind of individualized religion so lots of different individual satanists and tst have taken this particular holiday in a lot of different ways so that's the backdrop um I have to confess that I haven't really thought very deeply about the particular phrasing, uh, archaic superstition. Um, what it means, what what we mean by archaic superstition. Okay, so the the, I think an important starting point is that when members in TST engage in blasphemy, in, engage in activities like a black mass it is not targeted towards someone outside themselves it is rather a statement about it is rather a an act of catharsis to overcome religious trauma and so or or a religious experience that they have a deep um, personal story and connection with. And I always interpreted this language here as that. So it is, it isn't so much, I never interpreted this language as being about other people's beliefs, but rather about my former beliefs and being free from it and uh, being, being free from for example, the belief that this is a demon-haunted world and that there were demons all around me and that they had to be cast out of my body because I was gay. That, that was an archaic superstition that hurt me. Um, so much of the language and so much of the ritual activities that TST engage in can seem really uh, <laughs> hostile on their face. Um, but it's a it's a sort of catharsis for the individual and and isn't necessarily a statement about others, although I guess one could extrapolate from from there and but but for me, I was never really thinking 
about that <laughs> when it when it comes to language like this. It's 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 only about my own personal journey. Um, I guess I'll leave it at that for now. Any initial response, Randall? Any thoughts? Uh, first of all, I guess uh, I think it's important to recognize clearly that agree to which many people have been hurt by or traditional organized religions or by Christianity. Uh, I oft, a few years ago, I was reading through portions of the um, uh, the report that was produced uh, by the um, the district attorney inquiry into sexual abuse in the Catholic diocese in, in uh, Pennsylvania. And so you have these these uh, riveting reports of uh, people who are now adults, but over the last 40 years, they've been sexually abused by priests. And one of them, uh, I remember this uh, lady saying, every time I hear the word God, I think of him, meaning the face of this priest who had raped her. Now, that's an extreme example, but uh, it's just a reminder that certainly when people are hostile towards something like Christianity or organized religion, the first thing I want to know is why, right? Rather than just to have a trigger reaction, be offended or be angry. Uh, and I suspect in most cases that uh, when you understand more of the context, it will really illumine why the person has the perspective they do. Uh, when I hear the language of archaic superstition, as a theologian, probably the first thing that popped into my mind was a famous quote from the New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann, which I just pulled up here. This is from like the 1940s, I think. He says it is now he was someone who doubted, didn't believe in miracles, for example, just as a background. He says it is impossible to use electrical light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Now, what he's doing there is, is expressing the perspective of a modern 20th century European skeptic who says, well, in the modern world of science, we can't believe in miracles anymore. I think that's, I don't want to sound too condescending, but it seems to me a benighted assumption on Boltzmann's part. Um, he's simply reflecting a cultural perspective of the skeptical early 20th century European. And in fact, people in the 21st century, um, can, can be leaders at the forefront of science and also be engaged Christians. Uh, at my own church, I, I go to a Baptist church here in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, one of our congregants is Axel Halleen, who is a physicist, and he was he was on the team that won the Nobel Prize in physics. So uh, you can have very intelligent people who are at the top of their game and Christians, and they've integrated these different worlds. So I think we have to be careful. I mean, I appreciate Stephen's clarification, archaic being something relative to an individual's journey. But I think, I suspect for many people, it's going to be broader than that. It's going to be kind of a dismissal of entire perspectives that they now view as archaic. And I would think that there's a there's a significant degree to which our own plausibility frameworks as to what we find credible and not credible are going to always inform that which we consider to be archaic. So I think we just need to have a, a healthy dose of self-awareness before we sort of write other people off as, as too you know, irrational, for example. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think that there are two things there that are really interesting that I would want to explore. And the first is that I, I frequently get frustrated with my fellow non-theists in how derogatory and dismissive they are towards 
towards theists. And I, so I, I'm always really careful to clarify that I don't think that theism means someone is stupid, archaic, thoughtless, low IQ. That's just con. I mean, that it would it would be insulting for me to say that, but it would also just be wrong. I mean, many of the kindest, wisest and most compassionate, smartest people I know are theists. So I'm happy to put all of that to the side. And also, I don't think that um, a modern view, say a, a, a critical biblical view of scripture of understanding the nuances of, of the bible or having you know being a scientist or whatever the case may be I, I don't think that those are reasons to not be a christian and to not be a believer i think as you know bart ehrman points out there are reasons to not be a fundamentalist i think there are very good reasons to not be a fundamentalist but they aren't necessarily reasons to not be a christian so i always want to make that really clear um I also think that it is a good thing that modern medicine has supplanted previous modalities of that that were rooted in superstition. So so there was a you can you can take archaic superstition as um a demeaning phrase and I can and I personally, if I were writing this copy, I would not phrase it that way because I know how it would be read. And I have maybe a greater sensitivity to how things like this are read than maybe some other people. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily phrase it the way it is phrased here. Um, it is also, <laughs> I, I take it less as an insult and more is just descriptive. Um, I think it is a good thing that fewer people are, are being exercised of demons because they are gay. I think it is a good thing that um, left-handedness isn't demonized. I think it is a good thing that uh, we have a much better understanding of mental illness and that it isn't demons, you know, people. And the important thing to also when I when I say Christians aren't stupid, I also mean that of people in the past. I mean, people people in the past weren't stupid. They were working with the exact same brains that we have today. I mean, the exact same hardware that we have today is the exact same hardware they had a thousand years ago. So they weren't stupid. Um, They were doing the best they could. But it's also a good thing that old superstitions about the world are dying out. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. And one can hold. So when I hear when I hear archaic superstitions, I assume the old beliefs that I'm I'm grateful are less prevalent. A belief in demons when someone a, a belief in demons that takes the place of a schizophrenia diagnosis um the the exorcisms for people who who have a, a different type of sexuality or gender right there's a and and so to me there's a world of difference between that and that 
how do I say this? Let me let me gather my thoughts here. There's there's a there's a world of difference between that and a more expansive theism that I see from a lot of progressive Christians. I have no argument with that. Um, what I have an argument with is is supernatural claims that are harmful that are directly harmful and have and are ha, and are resistant to the you know the the explanatory march of science um that's what i have a problem with and for me personally that is what this phrasing for unveiling day speaks to does that make sense i don't know how well i'm i'm communicating this yeah, it does to me. I, Randa, just one second. It, yeah. is, I also think it's important to keep in mind that the Satanic Temple is a very young religious movement. And so I know you folks are still trying to come together. We're, we're still figuring out what, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. what we are. And, and also also on that note, I have to be very clear in saying that I am not a spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. So I, I am what I say here is not definitive. I am not the Satanic Pope. I cannot speak ex Satanic ex cathedra. I, I'm really just offering my own personal perspective as an individual member of TST, as, a, as an individual minister. Yeah. I appreciate that. Go ahead, Randall. I would I would just add so I think uh, from what I find a lot of people talking in broadly the area Stephen did in terms of sort of obsolete science and so on there there's sort of a and I'm not talking about Stephen here but what I've encountered for many people there's a tendency to sort of assume that's just flatly religious and so that religion or Christianity is linked with the archaic superstition but just to take one example one of these things that I think Stephen and I would both call an archaic superstition would be the theory of the four humors, which was an understanding of wellness and the balance of health within the body, which dated back to the ancient Greeks. There was nothing especially religious, quote unquote, about it. And it dominated thinking about uh, health and the body for centuries throughout Christendom. Or you could talk about a Ptolemaic theory of the universe, where the earth is the fixed center of the universe and there are these spheres that rotate around the universe, around the, the earth, I should say, and then the plant, the other planets, the sun, the moon are embedded within these spheres. That's archaic. There's nothing particularly religious about it. So I would just want mm -hmm. to, to, to be sure to, to clarify that because when you talk about things like demons, it automatically suggests there's sort of a religious overlay. I mean, the in, there's a complex interrelationship between these ideas. The ancient world is, of course, a religious one that's always religious in fact i would say the nature of religion is that even in our modern world you can hardly escape it because religion is just meaning making in one sense and when you have a certain sense of fundamentality of, of ultimate reality that becomes a religious centering force in your worldview so even if you're carl sagan saying um stephen mentioned the demon haunted world so thinking of carl sagan's book um carl sagan says the cosmos is all there is was or ever will be that can become a religious framework of looking at reality through the ultimacy of the cosmos. So, uh, yeah, but just, uh, and I, again, I'm not suggesting Stephen was doing this. I just want to be clear for everybody else listening that uh, the movement from archaic to something better is not a move away from religion to something better like science. 
I agree. I I agree with all of that. I'm a. Are you familiar with David Dark? Um, in his book "Life's Too Short to Pretend You Aren't Religious." Uh, no, but I love that. You you need <laughs> to read it. It's a great book, yeah. and I it, he was one of my first interviews for Sacred Tension years ago. But yeah, he he makes that exact same argument, and I I agree. I take a very broad and expansive uh, approach to religion. Excellent. Stephen, do you have a sense, uh, again, not speaking for TST, but just trying to come to grips with, with what they are saying so we can speak meaningfully to it and, and get it accurate, that maybe it, it the, the phrase archaic superstition is a concern, one, over supernaturalism as an atheist organization, atheist religion, and maybe also anti-science mindsets that, that many yes. religious people, especially uh, many evangelicals, many fundamentalists do have, particularly in things like evolution and so on. I think so for me personally, I would say that that second point is the most important. Um, let me actually pull up the tenet because I don't want to get the wording wrong here. Um, the fifth tenet is belief should conform to one's best scientific understanding, understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. Right. So um, I think that 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 second point that you said, it it really has to do with. With for me, I have it, it, it has to do with an allergy against distorting um consensus science and that doesn't mean that science doesn't progress and that doesn't mean that science isn't a process and that doesn't mean that science is like a church that issues final doctrines it is none of those things um instead science is an ongoing process that is always approximate and always updating itself but that being the case um anything that flies in the face of that i i have a a deep allergy to thoughts randall uh so i have the fifth tenet here um so it's uh just to again recap the last part one should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs i would just say why stop at scientific facts one should never distort facts period <laughs> whether they're scientific or not Agreed. in order to yeah. fit one's beliefs uh, so now I maybe understand, I assume the scientific, the satanic temple is a North American phenomenon or an American phenomenon. Is that fair? It, in, it started in its origins. It, yeah, it, its origins are very American. Yeah. It's international so, now, but it, it's right. very American. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, when I, when I read something like this in terms of historical context, I'm sort of assuming in, in the background is the, the prevalence of American Protestant fundamentalists and maybe Catholic fundamentalists uh, with resurgence of things like young earth creationism or climate change denial, more recently, the anti-vax movement. And it could be shaped by those uh, concerns of those as, as a negative social forces. And I think that's fair. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. A legitimate concern. But I, I, I would just want to say, yeah, as important as science is, um, it's just facts generally that we always need to be careful about allowing ourselves to distort anything because by definition of fact just is a true statement about something 
And so we should be careful not to allow our biases, whatever they may be, to distort our perception of truth, whether it's scientific or not. But certainly I would agree with this. And I mean, I think the interrelationship between something like Christian theology and science is very complex. It's it's not accurately described by the popular warfare myths that are propagated by people like the New Atheists, nor is it accurately, I think, really described by people like Stephen Jay Gould, who would argue for a sort of independence model, because doctrine is not sort of the area of values and science is the area of facts. They do have overlap. And so is, that's is where this you get the, into this. Is this the non-overlapping magisteria quote from Stephen uh, so that's Jay Gould? What I'm, yeah, what I'm critiquing is that sort of okay. independence model of NOMA or non-overlapping magisteria, where okay. you can say one, you know, theology deals with feelings or or uh, values, science deals with facts. I think no, they they theological claims have overlap with scientific claims, um, but they're not simply trying to do the same thing as someone like Dawkins would claim. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think I would agree with that. Now, Stephen, you uh, recently wrote uh, on Substack about how you you lost your faith, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if some of the, your experience relates to uh, to the subject that we're talking about in terms of archaic superstition. And what I found interesting was in your Substack piece, although you've uh, mentioned earlier in, in our conversation here that you did have some negative experiences. Uh, growing up in the church because of your homosexuality. Nevertheless, in if I understood your Substack piece correctly, it wasn't those experiences that caused you to leave Christianity. It was you, you said there were simply some things you couldn't believe in anymore. For you, would yeah. those things qualify as archaic superstition? Perhaps. Um, it's a good question. In my mind, something like the incarnation of Christ or the virgin birth, and I know that there are many people who would disagree with me on this, but just speaking as myself, I think that beliefs like belief in the Trinity, you know, all the stuff in the creeds, the apostles and Nicene and so on, I think that those things are are quite a bit more complex than mere superstition. I wouldn't call the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection a superstition. It, it it might have elements of superstition, but there's I don't know. There's a there's a depth to like the metaphysics there that I hesitate to dismiss as superstition. I don't believe it. Um, I don't think it is true, but I I would personally not call that superstition and and I'm not entirely sure why maybe at an intuitive level at a at an unexamined intuitive level I'm not calling it superstition um cuz I think that one can believe in the resurrection and have a and I mean as Randall mentioned be a Nobel Prize winning physicist or whatever the case may be. I know that the guy who headed up the Human Genome Project is an evangelical Christian. So so 
I believe that it is not true. I don't believe in the resurrection or the Trinity or that Mary, um, uh, or, or in the virgin birth or, or whatever the case may be, but I hesitate to call it superstition or yeah, I hesitate to call it superstition. Hmm. I, yeah, go on, go on. You want to share some, uh, what, just share a couple of examples of, and may, maybe Randall can respond of, of the kinds of things that cause you to just to say, I just can't believe in this anymore. Was it just the, well, right. did the okay. creed cover it or? So I, it's always so hard to talk about my loss of faith because it's like to use a really, really morbid, horrible comparison. It's like talking about a suicide. There's never one cause for a loss of faith in the same way. There's never one cause for a suicide. It is, we can never pinpoint it down to one cause or even one set of causes. It is this vast thing. It's, it's, and, 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 in a recent conversation that I had with my sister on the show, who is a conservative Christian, um, she pressed me on why I couldn't believe. And I kind of went for a for a meta answer, which is doubt happened to me. I don't know what it is that made me the relentless skeptic while other people just persisted in their belief. What was it that set me apart from my sister? I don't know. It That's a mystery of temperament. You know, I and so on a fundamental level, I really think that faith and doubt are things that operate at kind of a subterranean level. <laughs> and so everything that I'm about to say is kind of a post hoc rationalization. And I know that that's the case. Um, but I have this deep sense that I did not leave Christianity because I was hurt by Christianity. And I get frustrated with the assumption that it was because I'm I was hurt by Christianity because I I often feel like that sidesteps the real issue, which is I stopped believing in it. I could no longer believe in it. And I and I wanted to stay because I loved the community. You know, my life is a is a is a witness to Christian love. You know, I my life was ruined by Christians who treated me horribly because of my orientation. But but my life was also saved by Christians, by Christians who demonstrated genuine Christ-like love and hospitality and, towards me as a sexual minority, as someone who is the kind of person who would eventually go on to become a Satanist, uh, someone who is, who is very unconventional. My life was saved by those people, and I loved the person of Christ. I did not want to stop being a Christian, and yet... I had these, these, this persistent skepticism, this persistent inability to believe. And when I would surrender, it was like surrendering into nothing. So ultimately, the absence of, of God in any provable wet meaning it, it, for me personally in any provable meaningful way just led me to the question then why am i here and if i'm in church saying i believe xyz you can only do that for so long before you start to feel like a liar and i don't like lying and 
so I and I try it. And then there is also the fact that I feel like I came up against a culture in Christianity that is that is really focused on orthodoxy, on right belief. And I was interested in exploring a a kind of non-theistic Christianity and because I wanted to stay. I was interested in exploring a non-theistic Christianity, but I, I just came up against at least where I was in life and in community, even among progressive Christians, a real resistance to that because Christianity is historically a creedal faith. You know, Christianity is historically affirms the creeds uh, and values uh, confessions of faith. And every major church now and generally through history really emphasizes those confessions of faith. And I just couldn't do it. Um, I had already fought for so long for my place in the church as a sexual minority that that one last fight was just one too many. And then the satanic temple came along and it was all the things that I wanted. It was a non-theistic religion that that I was looking for. And that was that was it. So. But it it the the conflict for me was really on wanting to believe, but not being able to basic things like the the very not not even not even uh specific miracle claims this was deeper than that this this was deeper than that this was why what reason do i have to even believe in a god that has will and volition that that engages in our world that cares for us so this is this is beyond you know claims of miracles um this was the very premise of it um a god who who is who interacts with us um i kept feeling like i was um it, it kept feeling like uh like uh vapor like it just wasn't there so it it was a it it was deeper than any specific claim. It was the claim about God himself, any kind of God, any kind of deity. Now I'm I'm I have no argument with God as the ground of being. I have no argument with with first cause. I have no argument with you know there are there are a number of philosophical concepts that utilize God in interesting ways that I ultimately have no problem with. But what I do have a problem with is the leap from that to a God who loves me, a God who interacts with the world, a God who moves in mysterious ways, that God is completely invisible to me. Thus endeth the rant. <laughs> Plenty there to respond to. What do you think, Randall? Uh, first thing I would just caution in terms of the use of the word superstition but superstition does mean a belief or practice which results from ignorance or from fear, something like that. So um, 
if one doesn't really believe, as Stephen helpfully clarified here, that you know, he clarified a range of beliefs that he doesn't really believe are born of, of superstition, which I appreciate. Um, but then the whole language of archaic superstition is questionable language at the outset. Because if, if a person does have a superstitious belief, then another person, um, it's not it's not just, it's tough to maintain that just as a relative perspective. If it's superstitious, then really that other person's belief is presumably born of the same ignorance. Um, can I, so can just... I, can I interrupt really? I'm so sorry sure. to interrupt, but that sure. definition that you just gave, say that definition one more time. Uh, superstition being a belief born of, of ignorance or fear. I am 100% down with that definition in the context of this description of unveiling day, because if we take superstition as a belief based in fear, then yes, absolutely. That is, I think, something worth overcoming. And to me, that does not necessarily translate to other, to, to broader religious ideas, right? So, so for me personally, other Satanists will disagree. But what you just said, that definition rings true in the context of this description of Unveiling Day. Sorry, go on. I could give more. See, one of the things here that, that your comments has raised is the distinction between the genesis of the belief and the content of the belief itself. So a person could have a true belief, but it is born of fear for, for, for some reason, but it happens to be true. Uh, or they could have a belief that is born of fear and is false. So it's it's helpful to have at the outset sort of a distinction in people's minds, which I suspect many people don't. And and here, not just Satanists, but anybody, when we talk about other people having superstitious beliefs, is are we clarifying that we just believe that their belief was formed under circumstances that are not truth conducive, or do we also believe that the content of the belief itself is false and indefensible under any mm. schema? And so that would just be something worth thinking about. Um, one thing I really appreciated, I actually appreciate everything you said. Um, it's, I'm, I'm like, got to find things to disagree with here. Um, <laughs> but, but one thing I really appreciated in particular is when you talked about doubts and faith being subterranean. I mean, I did my PhD work 20 some years ago in systematic theology with a focus on philosophy of knowledge or epistemology. And I talked a little bit about doxastic voluntarism, which is this idea that people can control what they believe. And it's, I think I, doxastic voluntarism, I think is typically only invoked to uh, sort of show that it's an indefensible idea that in fact, we don't control what we believe. We can indirectly make decisions in life that can affect what we will come to believe, but we can't decide or determine the actual thing we come to believe. So, for example, I can say I'm going to, to look at the evidence on the other side from the belief I currently hold, but I can't determine what the outcome of that process is going to be. That's beyond my grasp. And so I think Stephen very eloquently summarized this in an existential and personal way with respect to his own journey. Uh, this is something I think that Christians, I mean, I wrote an entire book, John referenced at the beginning, is the atheist my neighbor, where I took aim at this popular and yet terrible idea among many Christians that all atheism is born of a sinful suppression of the knowledge of God. 
so that any person that is an atheist, it's a bad faith position, quite literally, that person is suppressing and refusing to acknowledge the knowledge that they actually have of God's existence. And this belief is largely buoyed by, I think, a proof texting approach to Romans chapter one. Um, and I think it just creates enormous problems. And one of the problems it creates is that it doesn't just entail that all atheism is born of sinful rebellion. It would also entail that all Christian doubt is born of sinful rebellion. So you have somebody like Mother Teresa who wrote in her journals, if there be a God, she constantly struggled with, with the most fundamental doubts in the very existence of God himself and in the goodness of God. Uh, to say that th that doubt was born of her sinfully refusing to acknowledge the overwhelming evidence of God's existence in the world, I think is just delusional and very harmful. It creates what we would call a sort of prosperity theology of the mind where any doubt is born of sinful rebellion, which is equivalent to the prosperity view that any illness is born of sinful rebellion. So we have to recognize that uh, people struggle with doubt. They experience doubt, sometimes doubt, questioning. These can actually be graces. They can be ways that we come to understand uh, all the beliefs that we hold in a deeper sense. Sometimes they can identify beliefs we had that were false and that we should have rejected. So we should uh, we should create communities, I think, that are welcoming of doubt and questioning. The last thing I would just want to tag on to that, uh, Stephen talked about the struggle with honesty and with the confession of a creed that you were doubting. I mean, I talk about that a fair amount in my book, the, the most recent one, Doubter's Creed. Um, a couple things I would say, first of all, I think to, to recognize and appreciate um, the North American church, I think, is deeply and adversely affected by individualism and rationalism. The idea that our response to the creed or our, our relationship to the creed is an individual one of cognitive assent of the individual and their understanding of the doctrines to which they assent, hence the individualism and rationalism. And I think we should recognize uh, really the function of these creeds is always communal. It is not an individual belief, it is a shared belief, and shared belief allows for individual doubt so that part of your identity in the Christian community is to confess the creed even when you doubt. Just like in a marriage, you are committed to your spouse even when you have doubts and struggles and you go through the dark night of the soul with your spouse. I I would like to explore that particular point that you made there because um, it's interesting because my partner has recently completed his very, very, very long conversion to Judaism. Um, and... And so I've been learning quite a bit about Judaism from him uh, as he's converted to Reformed Judaism. And in Reformed Judaism, there is very little emphasis on right belief. Um, there is, <laughs> they don't care, you know, there, it's, it's very much about the, the traditions and the communal identity, at least within the particular tradition that I have exposure to through John. This is not a statement about Judaism as a whole or other strands of Judaism, right? Um, and I've I was I'm kind of envious of that because that's very much what I wanted before I left Christianity. Uh, was I even a willingness to say the prayers without the collective sense of this is true in the but but i also 
want to explore what you just said because I I think the doubt that I experienced even cuts through cuts to that kind of secondary level, the communal level that you were talking about, which is I don't believe this is I cannot personally validate this. And I also don't but but it but to but to such a degree that it doesn't make sense to trust in the communal confession either and and so i i often struggle with this because i i often hear christians talk about doubt in in these various ways like nadia boltzweber uh who's a christian writer i really admire she said who the fuck believes the creeds like jesus the i might believe one I might believe one part of the creed, but then the point is that when we all say it together, one person, one person over there will believe one of them, and then another person over there will believe another of them, and then together we'll all be able to believe. And, but that that seems to not quite speak to that. That seems to speak to a level of trust that I did not have a level of because i was actually in that kind of community you know i was i was in a a fairly uh mystical community you know that that really valued contemplative mystical practice in an episcopal church um even there it was so totalizing that i could not even trust i had no trust so so i had neither trust nor belief um that was how deep I could not even trust. It did not make sense to for me to to trust in something that was was so contrary. Um, that was that was so con. Yeah, sorry. Go on. It looked like you had you had thoughts. So, I I in a recent conversation with my sister, I described this as. When I hear a lot of Christians talk about doubt, they talk about it as if it is the common cold, or if not the common cold, scarlet fever, or if not scarlet fever, HIV, something that you might live persistently with, but is ultimately treatable. And I so and I very often struggle to relate with these expressions of doubt because they talk about it as um the common cold metaphor it's a it's a seasonal challenge that ultimately bolsters your faith you come out of it or it is persistent but you continue to surrender like mother teresa um or it is something that is where where the answer is a collective uh a, a collective faith um so it Whereas it felt like mine was a was a case of terminal cancer. And so I really struggle to relate to the ways I hear a lot of Christians talk about doubt. And that isn't to say that I doubt the experience. I I believe that people have these experiences. I believe that they are honestly representing themselves, accurately representing themselves. But it, it's just hard for me to connect to. Yeah, so um, I'll say a couple of things. One, uh, well, first of all, it's um, 
everybody's got their own story and uh, they all decide at what point they just can't continue on with something. And, and that may have been your, been your journey at that one. I would, what I like to do at the very least is give other people categories for, for where they're at in the journey so that uh, they don't feel compelled to, to make a decision that they necess don't necessarily have to make. I would also like to, um, in one sense, reframe things. I think you've mentioned orthopraxy before, right practice. And of course, it's right orthodoxy is right worship or right belief, as we often think. Um, and they are both important, although certainly for many Christians, particularly growing up, say, evangelical, Protestant, so on, there's a really strong emphasis upon orthodoxy and right belief, I think sometimes to the detriment of orthopraxy. And I like to challenge, I used to be a professor. Um, I like to challenge, like to challenge my students uh, with a thought experiment to get them to appreciate how maybe orthopraxy is more important than orthodoxy. Not that orthodoxy is not important, uh, but I give them an example, true story. So Rwanda in 1994, of course, this was the, the most efficient genocide of the 20th century, 800,000 Tutsis killed in a matter of three months by Hutus. And at the time, two different responses I'll talk about. One of them was a Hutu pastor named Elizabeth Kutarama. He was Christian and his Tutsi congregants reached out to him for help. And instead of, of helping them, he directed the militias into the complex where they were hiding and they were slaughtered en masse. Second response was from Abai Diagni, who was a Muslim working with UN peacekeeping forces in, in Rwanda. And every day he defied the orders to remain within the compound from, from the United Nations. He took his Land Rover out and he would load it up with Tutsis and then bargain through checkpoints where 18 year olds are wielding machetes and machine guns using cigarettes to, to get these Tutsi through the checkpoints and ultimately into the compound. And he saved something like one or 200 people before he himself was killed. So I say to my students, if you have a choice to stand before the throne of God with the life and legacy of Nikotarama or Mabai Diagni, the first person who by Christian theology believed rightly, but lived in an abominable fashion with respect to his confession, or the second who believed wrongly, but lived correctly and nobly with respect to those very confessions the Christian professes in terms of practice, which would you choose? And honestly, I don't know that I've ever had a person say they would choose to be the one that had the right doctrine and yet was complicit in genocide. Now, to finally tie that into your journey, I mean, I've looked through the, the seven tenets of, of Satanism, right? And I, I think apart from the one um, about ownership or bodily autonomy, I think I'd have some qualifications and questions there. The rest of them I would most part wholeheartedly endorse. And I think that a person could, following those tenets, be participating in works of the kingdom from a Christian perspective. So it raises an interesting question. I, some years ago, I met Nate Phelps, who was uh, from Fred Phelps Church, the you know son of Fred Phelps, you know the Westboro Baptist, God hates fags church, quote unquote. So as toxic and noxious a religious community as you could imagine, and so Nate is an atheist. Last I checked, and I could understand why you could have want nothing to do with Christianity after being exposed to that kind of religiosity. Interesting question then. 
But someone like Nate Phelps or, or anybody who had been exposed to a toxic religious environment or Christian environment, could they end up in a sense being a better Christian, fulfilling more of the works of the kingdom in a non-Christian community with tenets that overlap with, with Christian tenets, like I think most of the satanic temples tenets do? And in a sense, could you be a better Christian as, as an atheist, given your backstory? Not you, but uh, in particular, but uh, you know, different people. So these are just questions to, to think about. And at the very least, they begin to break down the simple sort of binaries that we have of whether you're in or out, you're right or wrong. So do you think of, of Christian as less a set of beliefs and more kind of a, a system of ethics or at or including a system of ethics and if someone lives as lives those ethics does that in some sense make them christian so christianity is is a religion of course it's it is a set of doctrinal truth claims to be part of the christian formal christian community the church would require an expectation of adherence to a certain set of claims, given certain qualifications, right? I mean, a, maybe a three-year-old, depending on your ecclesiology, your, your understanding of the sacraments, maybe they've been inducted into the community, even though they don't yet have the beliefs, but their parents have a proxy faith or something like that. But yeah, there, there's uh, doctrinal commitments to it. I was a systematic theologian, I still am, so I appreciate the importance of doctrine. But it's one thing to talk about who is in and who's out of the church. It's another thing to talk about mm. who's in or out of the kingdom of God. The mm. kingdom of God in Christian theology would be a concept of, let's just say for a neutral language, ultimate truth and goodness uh, is setting the world to rights, to use uh, NT rights language. And so to the extent that you are participating in ultimate truth and goodness, setting the world right, you are participating in the kingdom of God, irrespective of whether you're in the church, quote unquote, or not, and thus irrespective of whether you're confessing particular doctrines or not. Mm, yeah, I it makes me think of something that Lucian Grieve said, who's the founder of the one of the co-founders of TST, and he says, uh, goodness done in the name of Satan is still good, and and evil done in the name of Christ is still evil. And the part of the invocation of TST reads, and I'll I might butcher the wording because this is from memory, but uh, let us judge people on the basis of their actions and not their adherence to arbitrary societal norms or categorizations, something like that. And so the the message isn't the point of Satanism. I am a religious Satanist, not because it it sends a helpful message, but it has a nice secondary byproduct of encouraging people, I think, to consider that one's social categorization does not necessarily make one moral or immoral. And that, I think, resonates with what you're saying here. So I really appreciate that. Can I just ask the big for me what what is the big elephant in the room? Um, and that's that <laughs> satanic temple is terrible branding. Like I understand uh, the sense uh, that you talked about earlier of a sort of a reaction to bad experiences and so on, but it looks in a sense it appears like a giant troll. 
Uh, yes. Because, yeah, the average fundamentalist or Christian or evangelical or Catholic is going to think that you, you know, are engaged in child sacrifice and black mass and and celebrating evil. And if they read through the tenets, they find that's not actually it at all. I mean, again, I said I'm I'm have questions about your bodily autonomy principle. For example, I want to know how that applies um, for parents giving their children a vaccine, things like that, and all sorts of other conversations or questions. But most of them I have no real qualms with. And yet the average person, you're going to have this. It's kind of like me going around the people who think evangelical means Trump supporter, gun-wielding xenophobe, and telling them I'm an evangelical, knowing it's going to have all that baggage with them, which does not accurately describe me. So it's kind of at cross purposes, in in a sense, for for you to use yeah. the language of satanic temple and the imagery and perception it's going to invoke in other people. Yeah, no, I'm I'm delighted to talk about that, and it's ironic because I have an article coming out tomorrow, which is about exactly that, called uh, the satanic conversion. And you know, I I. I think that other people go about this way more rationally than I do. I am, I did not fall in love with the tenets and belief in the tenets is not enough to be, I believe a member of TST. You have to be a Satanist and the, the um, kind of the punchline of the joke that people so often experience when they interact with Satanists is so many people come to the Satanic temple, assuming that it consists of trolls, that we are merry pranksters, as one headline put it, um, that we're atheists pretending to be Satanists. And the great punchline at the end of the joke is, no, we're just Satanists. And I can't, I'm not anything else. I mean, I, and I fell in love with the symbol of Satan. I fell in love with the symbol of Satan as a religious experience. And I'm, I didn't do it because it was politically expedient. I didn't do it because it was good marketing. I didn't do it be, to make a point. I didn't do it as a troll. I did it as a sincere act. And so other people, I think, I I I often think that that and I'm not saying that you did that you are doing this but I I think people writ large <laughs> often look at me and assume that because I'm a non-theist they assume that I have no ounce of of um religious fervor or intuition or or you know that subjective religious life it's it's better to say that satanism is a love affair um, and less of a theory, to quote G.K. Chesterton, when he said, let your religion be more of a, less of a theory and more of a love affair. And my Satanism is all love affair. And yes, it makes my life very hard. It, why I would not jeopardize work and relationships and friendships with family for a point, for a political point, for, um, bad marketing <laughs> and so the, the the idea of um the idea of the of it being marketing is um or, or bad pr um is entirely orthogonal to what it is which is a religious identity um 
I, I fell in love with the symbol of Satan as the literary figure first established in Milton, you know, first, first, you know, in paradise lost. And then there was the long literary tradition of, um, valorizing Satan, the romantic poets, um, and people like, um, Hugo and Blake and Shelley and Anatole France. And I mean, the, the tradition goes on of, of people valorizing Satan as the, as the symbol of the outsider, as the ultimate outsider. And, and kind of against my better judgment, I resonated with that, symbol of satan and and relig modern religious satanism is less rooted in a biblical conception of satan and more in, more in the literary conception of satan and um yeah against my better judgment i i related deeply to it and I, you know, and I was cognizant of the fact that it would work against me and it does work against me. I mean, when I first converted, you know, when I, when I first joined TST, uh, when I first had my satanic conversion, I decided that I was going to do this all in secret, that, that it was just going to be for me and that I was not going to talk about it. And there are a large number of secret satanists out there, um, who you would never know because th there are very negative, um, consequences to being a public Satanist. But I, I do have to take measures to protect myself because it is dangerous. Um, it is the situation that I have found myself in, and it is entirely, entirely irrational. <laughs> the great paradox being that it is a religion that that uh, values rationality, but is kind of the the love of it. It is it is irrational. Why would I do this to myself? Yeah. The well, yeah, go on, like go on. No, it seems like we just kind of gotten the conversation going, but it's been a little over an hour, and uh, we need to to draw things to a close. How about closing with uh, some brief statements about what you hope your respective religious communities take away from this conversation, Randall? What if you go first? Uh, what Christians take? I mean, I yeah. think so. There's this old saying. You know, tell me about your God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that God either. And uh, I think uh, I kind of hear from Stephen, I, I could say, tell me about the Satan you don't believe in or you do believe in, because maybe I believe in that Satan too, or something like that. It's like, uh, once you begin to talk to people time and again, you discover the degree to which there is overlap. I appreciate Stephen's distinction between the, the biblical view of Satan versus the literary, although... Uh, growing up in the 80s, listening to a lot of heavy metal, I got to say your logo also looks a lot like Venom's logo of uh, yes. the goat head of Satan. So, um, <laughs> so there's also those connotations, which were back then in the day, actually pretty anti-religious. But I do appreciate what you said. I would say that in that sense, Jesus is the ultimate outsider. So um, there's there's a lot of commonality, ironically, there. He's a system disturber. We'll put it like that. But yeah, I've, I've really appreciated it. And I think that we are, something I often say in conversations like this at the close is that, uh, but I think it bears repeating, we are in, a, in an age of increasing polarization. And uh, like Stephen talks about uh, potentially feeling, you know, you're not always safe with others. And um, I don't think that's going to get better, sadly, anytime soon. 
I think it's going to get worse. And I think that uh, what we have to do continually is to seek out conversations and connections like the ones we've had today. And so, John, I want to thank you for hosting it. Stephen, I want to thank you for participating. I thought it's been great. And hopefully others can benefit from it and we can begin to continue to build these bridges. Yeah, I echo everything that that you've said there. Uh, I think that we're living in a culture of retreat where we are retreating from one another and into little enclaves where we only see the most, you know, monstrous, you know, caricature of each other, uh, of, of other groups outside of our own. And I think that that inevitably leads to violence. I think that that, and so I think our only option is to talk. Um, if we don't use our words, then we use force. And so I'm a really, really big believer in trying to imperfectly demonstrate having conversations across divides. Because um, very often when I walk away from those conversations, I, I always discover that the divide is actually much smaller and that we have more in common with each other than we thought. So I, I hope that our conversation has demonstrated that to a lot of my listeners on sacred tension. Wonderful. Randall, Stephen, thank you so much for this first ever combined multi-faith matters, sacred tension, evangelical and Satanist podcast. I appreciate both of you. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thanks a lot. I would love to. Thank you.